Hello and welcome to the November 30th edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global Dialogue Program. I'm your host, Patrick Ryan. One year ago today, ChatGPT was launched by OpenAI and has already recorded over 1 billion visitors per month. It has brought into public view the promise of AI's utility. However, the proliferation of AI tools has also raised questions about the risk the technology poses. In August, we talked with Dr. Rachel Bronson, president of the Bulletin of the, the Atomic Scientists, the Doomsday Clock people, in our Global Dialogue program to talk about this new Oppenheimer moment where people have to grapple with technology that both promises uh, great achievements, uh, but poses uh, risks to humanity. Today, we'll be talking about AI with Paul McGuire. Paul is CEO and co-founder of Nomadics Inc., an innovative solutions provider. A serial entrepreneur, he co-founded Nomadics in 2013, where he continues his track record of growing small businesses to successful acquisition. Prior to Nomadics, Paul served as president of Ultra Electronics ProLogic, where he managed the integration of small government IT contractor ProLogic following its 2008 acquisition by Ultra Electronics, as well as two other acquisitions worth a combined $128 million. You can learn more about Paul's accomplishments in the industry on the TNWAC website, landing page, and in this video uh, archive version program notes on YouTube. I'll add that uh, Paul served for eight years in the U.S. Navy, including as an Iraqi analyst during operations Desert Storm and Desert Shield and aboard the carrier Constellation, where I had the pleasure of being his shipmate in the intelligence division. Paul McGuire, thanks for taking time to talk about AI today. Patrick, thank you very much for the introduction, and thank you very much to the World Affairs Council for asking me to speak on a topic that is uh, certainly near and dear to my heart uh, relative to where I think technology trends are going. Um, I, I want to preface anything I'm about to say is I am not an alarmist relative to AI. I'd like to think I'm in the middle of the road in terms of practicality. It is a tool. It is a tool that has already proven to be incredibly efficient and in a number of verticals. There won't be a single vertical in the next 100 years that won't be touched by AI. However, having said that, there are some um, issues right now with the implementation of AI going forward, not the least of which is there don't seem to be any guardrails uh, in the industry relative to how it's used, why it's used, and what data sets are used to train it. So I, I'll, well, we'll try we'll and- We'll drill down into uh, into those uh, issues, but uh, first, uh, tell us about Nomadics. Uh, what do you do? What is what is uh, an innovative solutions provider? Yep. So, yeah, that's a that's a great catch-all. So, Nomadics is a small business uh, headquartered in Northern Virginia. We've got offices in North Carolina and Utah, Kansas, Texas, and about to open up an office in Oklahoma. And uh, our first mission at the company was to create a software platform to connect. IoT devices, Internet of Things devices, to ERP systems, enterprise resource planning systems, so that you could create a single pane of glass for enterprise managers to see everything that's going on in their enterprise, the weather, the where their people are, what doors are open and closed, what helicopters are available to go and rescue someone uh, from a fire. And it was, uh, you know, 10 years ago, Go and we conceived of the idea to do it and, and quit our day jobs to go find the money to fund it. The concept of connecting devices to data 
wasn't as well accepted or regarded as it is now. In fact, uh, for the first few years when we would tell people what our thesis was, they would look at us and say, why would I want to know that, right? And an example of something we might do is, let's say for executive protection overseas in Africa, you're going to fly an executive from Houston, Texas to Mozambique. And in order to do that, you need um, several pieces of information. You need a return ticket. You need uh, a hotel accommodations. You need to have taken an AIDS test. You need to have an um, work visa, you need an invitation letter. You need to have a passport that has at least six months left on it uh, when you arrive in country. And there's a lot of, uh, yeah, you need to have uh, malaria prophylaxis with you. And you think, well, how hard is all of that? Well, the problem is in most large enterprises, each piece of that data was in a separate distinct uh, piece of software. And so people were flying from Texas to uh, South Africa and then on to Mozambique and being turned around after being in the air for 24 hours and sent back to the United States because one or more of the things they needed to sequence and synchronize their arrival wasn't there. And what we've done is we've come in with our software and we sit across all of it so that we can reach into your health records, we can reach into your travel visa, we can reach into your work permit, we can reach into your credit card transactions for an airline ticket. And we can make all that sing on a single screen so a user doesn't have to go into five different applications uh, to get it. And since we've started working with our clients on technology like that, we've reduced the number of mistakes and resource allocation issues uh, associated with it. And then over time, what's happened is the more things we connected, the more questions we got from people that led us into doing things with artificial intelligence. So as an example, people would say, hey, that's great. You've connected my phones to my car GPSs, uh, building alarms. Can you then tell me when would be a best time of the year for that person to go in and out of country so it's the least uh, cumbersome for them to do it? And of course, you could do that if you have 100 people working on just that problem. But if you have the right data sets and the right uh, language model to train, you could actually put in a prompt into something like a ch chat GPT and get an answer or some other generative AI uh, to do it. So we got into AI not by uh, design. Like 10 years ago, we did not say at some point we will add AI to our portfolio of technologies. We got into AI by necessity because our clients now expect government agencies, large energy companies, large transportation companies, they expect that you're keeping pace with what's going on. So we had a concerted effort about two years ago to look at the implementation of AI to start solving more problems for our clients once we got them all connected. Well, it does sound like an innovative solutions company. Thanks for sharing that with us. And and uh, I'll, I'll note that uh, you do a lot of travel and, and you're currently on the road in, in Oklahoma. So we appreciate, uh, especially today, you checking in with us. Oh, it's, it's again, it's, it's my pleasure. And I like to talk about things like this for a number of reasons, one of which is what are other people thinking? Almost every AI presentation I've done in the last six months, I start out the presentation by asking the audience, how many people are using something like ChatGPT? All the hands go up. How many people have some generative AI built into their enterprise? About half the hands go up. How many people got their generative AI tool on the open source market from a site like Hugging Face? And, a, and too many hands go up. And then I ask people, when you're bringing outside open source technology into your business operations, 
are you at all concerned about what the impact might be if there's something in that parameter for a 7 billion parameter model? Are you concerned that some of those things might get you cross a customer or a government as you try to roll out solutions? And oddly enough, people are running so fast to put AI into the enterprise, to get AI on their website, to put AI onto a marketing sheet that they're not spending what I think isn't enough time to take a look at what the risks are, right? And so one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you and your team today about this is to sort of get out some of the things I think people should be concerned about. But at the same time, as I said, I don't want to be a naysayer about AI. It's here to stay. It is part yeah. of what we're doing. But there, there should be potentially some caution exercised by managers when they think about how they're going to and when they're going to put AI into their enterprise. Right. Well, the audience that uh, you talk to probably has a different orientation than, than the audience here today. So let's, let's just drop back a little bit and, and set the scene uh, on an artificial intelligence. And, and you know, we've had a history over decades of people talking about artificial intelligence, whether it was science fiction or some new technology that uh, was starting to, to break through. Uh, but it was uh, the appearance of ChatGPT last uh, November 30th last year that uh, seems to have been a game changer uh, for making miracles possible across a spectrum of human endeavors to uh, the risk of damage that uh, that we've mentioned. So how would you describe the landscape of the world of the AI as we understand it today for, for the layperson? Well, you know, statistically, um, there isn't an industry right now that isn't at least dabbling in it, right? And either using ChatGPT to streamline contract proposals or legal um, items. And then there's people that go a step below that, which is I'm going to download a large language model from somewhere, from IBM as part of the Granite and Watson X program, or Microsoft as part of Copilot or Salesforce as part of their Einstein co-pilot program. So they, they make that step, they're gonna do that. Then there's another group of people who say, I don't wanna pay Salesforce or IBM or Microsoft for a curated model where I might know all the parameters. I'm gonna to go to one of these open source websites and I'll just download my own model and I'll take my chances, right? And about 80% of the AI projects that are going on globally are using some form of open source AI without sort of reflecting on what's in that model they just downloaded, what data sets were used to train it. And you've probably seen stories locally about police departments using things like computer vision and facial recognition, which are AI and machine learning driven to make arrests. And in many cases, because the data sets don't usually uh, include people who are, are not white, right? They're having a high incidence of false arrests associated with computer vision driven solutions uh, and arresting people incorrectly. And when you look and you say AI probably isn't at a point, and by probably, I mean, it's not, it's not to the level of DNI, DNA specificity, specificity. Right. the sure. most part, the data sets that are used to train people on facial recognition and object detection are not very complete. But people are in that fear of missing out. So they want to do it quickly and they get it out there. And again, as you know, from your Navy days, if you want it fast and you want it cheap, uh, you probably don't want it good. And so that's been a problem. And it's hurting the industry because it's giving the technology a, a bad reputation, uh, potentially undeservedly. 
Right. Well, in our conversations ahead of today's uh, webinar, we talked about uh, uh, the dual issues of democratization of data and access through these open sources. And we're, we're going to get on a little bit uh, further down the, the stream here to talk about some of the global issues. But uh, you had mentioned democratization of data and access through open source AI. What, what should we know about that? Well, I think that right now, almost any company of any size for not a big investment can have AI as part of their enterprise, right? And it, and it can be used uh, to reduce the number of people that are working in your um, enterprise. And I'll give you an example. So we've been doing proposals recently, and you can download the proposal, put it into something like ChatGPT, and ask ChatGPT to find the three biggest themes in the proposal language. And then that way, when you respond back for the proposal and you have win themes for the people that do proposals, you can make sure that the win themes that you're putting in your proposal align with the win themes that were in the proposal as it came out. Now, to date, that's been a very manual person. You know, there's people who are experts at black hatting things and putting together proposals. But now I'm a small and medium sized business. I don't have the greatest contract person. I don't have the greatest proposal writer, you sort of don't need that person, right? You can go in and download those things yourselves with a few prompts as you get good at and better at and start making submissions. Things like um, pagination and fonts and things like that can all be handled without you having to go through it. And a, and a standard prompt that I do when I'm submitting uh, work for um, publication is if there's a 750 word limit on the article and i'm at 783 rather than me spend a lot of time deciding what 33 words need to come out of it i'll put it into something like chat gpt with a prompt that says reduce this to 750 words and then seconds later you get it you read it again make sure you, your themes haven't changed and now you can submit it and those are things that happen instantaneously in any size company with a little bit of training on how to do prompts can get very good at it. And so I think it's a great it's a, it's a great tool going forward to level the playing field for small and medium-sized businesses to compete with the big boys. And the other issue that uh, you brought up was the risk posed by open AI, uh, open source AI models. And you've already said that uh, you take a practical approach to it, uh, but there, there have been uh, warnings. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Hinton from uh, Google uh, left Google and, and warned about the uh, the threats from AI and uh, the Center for AI Security, some industry leaders talked about the, uh, the risk of extinction and that was subsequently uh, talked down a little bit, but it does raise some alarm bells. So uh, give us your uh, Paul McGuire take on uh, the risk from AI. Yeah, I, I think the risk from AI, right? And, and I recently attended an insurance technology symposium in Las Vegas, where one of the key panel members was from Microsoft representing Copilot. And a question came in from the audience and said, hey, I've been using Copilot to do X, Y, and Z. And the person from Microsoft said, okay, just because you can doesn't mean you should. We created Copilot as something to add efficiency into it, not autonomy. AI sort of isn't at the stage of maturity yet where you can just put in some prompts, get some stuff, not look at it and turn it in. And one of the dangers with AI and the way it's being used is people don't understand right now where to level, where it still has to be man or woman near the loop or on the loop. 
but, but potentially not in the loop, right? That's where the efficiency savings come. And so as we cross the line from efficiency to autonomy sometime in the future, we're not there yet. The question will be what data was used to train your data, you know, what data sets were used to train your model. And one of the examples um, that I'm, I use now all the time at the conference was 700 people in a room. The moderator said, I want everyone to close their eyes and we're going to do a thing to talk about bias. And so close your eyes for 30 seconds. I want you to imagine a house, right? Get that house in your mind. 30 seconds is up. She asked for a show of hands. How many people in their mind pictured a house that had one door in the front Everybody, you know, half the people throw their hand up. How many people had a house that had two doors in the front and a, and a garage door? Another group of people. How many people had a, a roof that was this way or a roof that was that way? And what happened was, she said, even without you thinking about it, because bias is sort of um, aligned with a negative comment, everybody brings bias to the way they train their models, right? So a model that's been trained and tuned to do facial recognition in airport security might not be the model you use to attach to a police officer's car on for dash cam to find um, suspects. And, and not enough people are having those thought exercises because the pressure is on to get AI into the enterprise and people are willing to take the risk or might not even understand what the risk is when they download these models. Well, that's, that's all interesting stuff. But let's uh, just round out one more thing on the landscape of AI. We hear the word generative uh, artificial intelligence. And uh, I understand that's uh, uh, the kind of AI like chat GPT that can be used for content creation. What other kinds of AI uh, are out there and, and being utilized? Yeah, there's, there's a number of different um, verticals uh, that are beyond generative AI. And, and we're sort of not there yet, right? It's one of those things where generative AI was adopted so rapidly in the last year, as you pointed out, it's been a year. And I listened in on the um, market call yesterday from the CEO of Salesforce. And this is what he said. He goes, we just released in September our Einstein co-pilot uh, generative AI solution. We, uh, two weeks ago, were doing a trillion, um, a, a, tr a, a trillion calculations a month. Last week, we did a, a trillion calculations in a week, right? So in, in a space of the three months since it's been released, it's already scaled up to a point where a trillion um, uh, becomes a 30-day thing, and now a trillion becomes one-week thing. And he got asked, when are we going to have a trillion calculations done in, in a day, right, in a 24-hour period? And he said, not as long. It's not as long uh, forward to think about that. And so you think about the amount of data that's being stored. I don't know what the data storage facility landscape looks like in Nashville, but where I live in Northern Virginia, every single new building project that you see in a farm or forest is a data center. And when people go by, they go, how many data centers do we need? You need a lot of them. Because right now, people have been using generative AI to download things from the web and using the World Wide Web as the, as the base data source. But as we become more and more precise in the types of things we want AI to do for us beyond generative AI, you're going to see people want to host everything themselves. They don't want whatever lessons learned they get from generative AI to be something that's available to someone else. And that's one of the things where people are starting to look at when I submit data to chat GPT to have it do something, to do a prompt, who owns the results of that? 
right? Who right. Are, and so there are companies right now who have put in place rules that say you can't use ChatGPT. Now, the, the question is, you can't use it. At some point, there are going to be companies that use AI and companies that are out of business, right, uh, for, for, for most um, tasks outside of maybe manufacturing. And so uh, people want to get their toes wet, and they don't understand um, what's the best way to do it, and they don't understand what's beyond it, right? Generative AI is really taking human experiences and human data and extending it and giving you quick uh, prompts. But the next versions of AI, when we get past generative AI, are going to do more than that. You're going to have predictive analytics. And that's one of the things that Salesforce talked about. They said in one month, year over year, they went, they had an 80% increase in the number of deals they closed uh, with uh, worth more than a million, right? And and they did that with less people this year than they had last year. So you're already starting to see, right, the dislocation of the workforce in things right. that are dull, dirty, and tiresome taken over by AI. And at some point, things like predictive AI will take it a next step further. What if there was a way to route air traffic so that you can reduce the stress on a system when there's bad weather, so that you can pre-deploy pilots and aircraft to a location that isn't going to be impacted by weather to pick up the slack. And those are the those are the problems that I'm excited about seeing get solved. But along the way, I'm, I'm always preaching a little bit more caution than my uh, average uh, innovative technology CEOs who really, I, when I talk to them, they go, I, I didn't know that. Like if you tell them, hey, the, the value of the model is driven by the data it looked at, they look at me like I got five heads. They don't understand what a parameter is. So if you say, hey, I downloaded a 1 billion or 7 billion parameter model, they don't understand what the difference of that is. They don't understand um, what the hosting requirements are. Uh, they don't understand, you know, people are using NVIDIA servers right now and they're buying them on time so that they don't have to have the infrastructure cost associated with owning all that themselves. So there's a right. big when market dislocation, not just for people. Right. But we're, you know, taking the man out of the loop is more than just market dislocation. Uh, you know, we, when I talked with Rachel Bronson at uh, the Bull of Atomic Scientists, we were talking about AI being incorporated into a strategic weapon system uh, uh, alertment and uh, employment. And, and of, that's uh, where, I, yeah. And, and that's one of the areas where I say, you know, again, every time you have that discussion in public, someone invariably yells out Skynet, right? Because that's the thing, <laughs> or war games, right? And, and it gets a chuckle, but it shouldn't get a chuckle, right? I, I'm a firm believer that right now we are not at maturity where it can be man or woman out of the loop. I, I believe that uh, you still need people, human-directed AI is what you, you hear the term used. I still think that needs to be done. And in terms of weapon systems, right, there's companies out there, I don't want to name and shame them, who are going out there making bold predictions about uh, unmanned weapon systems, being able to do free releases of kinetic uh, firepower on lethality without a human being ever checking that off. And you and I both played in an environment in a sandbox where we see what happens when, that, when those things go horribly wrong. But again, at the same time, I, I still want to, I'm a big believer in it. I'm a believer in, in the things that it's going to solve for us, make life better. I still, though, think uh, like Hinton leaving, you need to start pumping the brakes. I talked to the head of um, a, a national lab about um, what's going on in his industry. And what he said is he said 20% of his staff left over the fear that people were playing with, um, you know, the sort of Damocles without realizing 
realizing that they were running with scissors. Uh, and that's what they that's what they think AI from an autonomy role is right now, that we're not there, but people think we are, and they're proceeding as if we are, and, and there will be peril associated with it. Right. Well, there's all kinds of reactions uh, about the labor implications. You know, we've seen the uh, the Hollywood strikes over uh, writers and, and actors concerned about uh, their material being used by AI and, and them being out of the loop as far as a paycheck. So th there's going to be a lot of that uh, redefining where the, as you say, the guardrails are. Let's, uh, Paul, let's turn uh, to uh, the global issues. Um, something I'm a little more comfortable with than, than talking about data sets and trillions of calculations. Um, I'm, I'm out of that business these days. But China, Russia, others, uh, you know, Russia just uh, had a, a conference and Putin said that uh, uh, Russia needs to, to develop the AI in the, in the Russian Federation to a, a point where the Russian culture is not overwhelmed by Western uh, AI issues. China clearly is uh, a competitor with the United States in the AI arena. Uh, give us the picture of, of what you see as the international implications for the uh, proliferation and advancement of AI. And, and, you know, you talked about guardrails, but um, some of these actors are not going to be looking at the same guardrail that we are. In fact, as concerned as we all are about nation states, I am equally as concerned about um, CEO ownership in these large trillion dollar multinational companies who, you know, their thing is, I want engagement. I want people on my website. I want to be able to um, take the data that is available out there and use it the way I see fit. And there's zero guardrails on them. As you know, there was a recent conference over in the UK and, and you take a look at who attended and who didn't attend, right? So President Biden wasn't there, the vice president was there, but Elon Musk was there and getting, you know, um, you know, just as much input into what they're facing going forward. Part of it is they want to know where are the lines because they will go right up to the line, right? In in the UK and then Europe, as you know, there's much stricter privacy rules and penalties if you violate privacy. And the fact that people are getting data from the World Wide Web without getting permission from the people that they got data from, right? We think about Cambridge Analytica uh, several years ago during the election, who owns the data? And that's a fight that isn't going to be solved probably in my, in my lifetime, right? We saw, saw a little bit of the pushback. You mentioned the Hollywood strikes, but I would look at China as somebody we need to be extremely um, concerned about because they won't have any guardrails. Like we, we at least talk about having some guardrails and what are they? And there's some executive... Um, committee notes coming out of the White House, but in China, there isn't because they see AI and dominating AI uh, as a potentially existential threat to the Chinese way of life and Russia a little bit farther behind the same thing. And as you know, a lot of the NVIDIA technology uh, that's being used to, you know, do all these calculations is somewhat restricted. The problem is you've got people in the middle of the hardware manufacturers and end users like a nation state or a corporation who don't mind taking the risk to get um, computer time or computer sets over to places that it should be denied. And most of that is available through the web from anywhere in the world without a lot of checks on who you are when you download it, right? And, and so that's that's a big concern that it's it's gone so fast, so quickly that 
the catch up um, for regulatory um, oversight in the United States and other countries just isn't there. And um, you know, while I, I still believe the United States is one of the world leaders, I can't say that 10 years from now, we will be the world leader, right? Because things are getting out. One of the um, scientific ethicists said, there's two things about AI that should have happened when it started. It should never be connected to the web and it should never be taught how to program. And the first two things that happened with AI was it was connected to the web and they taught it how to program, right? And the, you know, going back to the rubric about nuclear weapons don't make smarter nuclear weapons, but generative AI and AI and predictive AI can make smarter um, software and smarter algorithms and help develop more efficient hardware platforms to run on it. And I think that's sort of the thing where it's a sky is falling. I'm not saying the sky is falling. I'm just saying you should look up to the sky every now and then and see what is going on. Right. Well, in the case of China, you know, we we know for years that they've uh, uh, almost perfected the security state where they use uh, social scorecards uh, to keep track of uh, people and, and uh, facial recognition, uh, especially in areas uh, uh, where the Uyghurs are in the Northwest and, and crack down on the demonstrations and, and so forth. So AI is only going to make that uh, more of a uh, significant uh, problem domestically, uh, but they're also acting internationally. There was a report recently that uh, the United Arab Emirates was working with China to uh, perfect some of these AI uh, applications. All of the Middle East states are caught in a in a requirement loop where, for their own existence going forward, as as less and less carbon energy gets taken from their land and their their status in the world gets impacted by that. They're starting to make decisions about, well, maybe, you know, the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, Dubai, uh, Abu Dhabi, they're sort of the financial capitals of the world right now. Not, not, not saying that they've replaced New York, but they're on a par with that. And they're, quote, business friendly. And what we mean when I say business friendly is not a lot of, not a lot of regulations. And so what if you started putting all the large AI data centers in a country that's not as uh, closely aligned with US interests as we would like, and then that becomes the safe haven, the Switzerland of AI for potential uh, bad actors. And I'm not saying the UAE is a bad actor, but they're making decisions now and they're not considering U.S. feelings about uh, how those decisions work. And China is only more than happy enough to do it because China's got a money crunch right now. And a lot of the Gulf states have the money to uh, keep the, some of these things going. Yeah, well, let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, AI advancing the, uh, the use of propaganda and, and uh, disinformation, uh, especially as we look towards another election year. Uh, clearly, uh, there's been a number of tools out there, but this has just got to be hyping up the, uh, uh, the amplitude of the, the propaganda threat. Well, and again, I know everybody has their opinions, and I know it's a third rail to talk about, but look at what's happening on the propaganda, misinformation, disinformation via TikTok that then is one of the things that pushes students over the line to start protesting against Israel and, and essentially chanting support for Hamas. That's not an accident, right? It's not that one day every student at an Ivy League college decided, I don't like Israel. It's, hey, I get 80% of my information from social media and things like TikTok, and it's telling me Israel is bad. I'm going to go out and start protesting. Right. So and it's one of those things where the Chinese or other state actors can see the results of their disinformation campaign that quick. Right. right. And, and 
things like deep fake videos or things that sound good, right? As we all know, social media has allowed people to seek out the news they want, not news, but the news they want and it's reinforcing. And it's so much easier to generate content right now uh, with AI than ever before, where again, as I point out, it won't just be nation states that do this. It'll be other types of criminal organizations and bad actors with ill will toward the United States who will use those tools because it doesn't cost a lot of money, right? I, I, I don't know if I shared the anecdote with you, but you download a large language model, you train it to do an attack vector, and then over a weekend, it generates an attack vector against a piece of technology that's used for SCADA, right, to monitor pipelines. And in less than two days for less than $8,000 without a single line of code being written, it generated an attack vector against a SCADA system that could disable pipelines, right? And that was done just as a proof of concept of how dangerous is it? Okay, well, we, we all feel good about that now. Um, let's let's just touch one more thing on the, the industry that's been in the news. Uh, ChatGPT uh, fired Sam Altman and he was out over the weekend and back in. And, you know, for most people that that's just background noise. What, what does that mean? Is it relevant? Well, I think it's relevant because they had a model over there as a not, you know, essentially as a not-for-profit, but they also had their largest investor is Microsoft, right? Trillion dollar valuation company. Um, ChatGPT is their sort of baby. It's embedded now in Copilot. And, you know, with that, that news, then the question is, how are people monetizing it, right? How are you getting paid? How does Sam Altman get paid? And again, he's been very candid in front of Congress about the risks, right? He he is he has told people, and that has sort of hurt him because then you got a board that probably doesn't understand it as well as he does, saying, "Well, he didn't tell us that." Well, he's been messaging that for a long time now about what the ills are, and I think there's a conspiracy theories growing up right now that this was Microsoft's plan all the time is to get someone other than them to get it out there, get it adopted and then bring their ownership uh, to, to, to bear. And then you're faced with, if those people weren't working for OpenAI today, they'd be working at Microsoft, right? And so the, the, the bigs are already starting to dominate what is being done and what's accessible relative to AI. Salesforce released Einstein. Um, our friends at Google have uh, their new uh, generative AI out there and Elon Musk wants his to be next. And so you're going to have the same people that dominated social media and tech dominating AI. And I'm not sure long-term that's a positive uh, benefit for anybody other than shareholders. Okay. Interesting times we live in, uh, Mr. McGuire. What, uh, what closing comments would you like to leave with us? Yeah, again, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, I'll have to watch this when it comes out, whether or not I'm coming <laughs> off as, as too negative. My, that's not my goal. I, I believe AI is going to save lives. I do. I, it, it is, right? It, even in things like diagnoses right now, you're already starting to see anecdotes of these rare tropical diseases being diagnosed in, in, in chat GPT rapidly. So those are all net positives. It's going to help us with uh, the global grid and power um, uh, distribution. It's going to help us with food distribution. There's all sorts of things it is or will help us with over the next 10 to 20 years. At the same time, um, in the in the hands of people who uh, want to do ill, the cost of ownership to play in an AI world and get access to data is just way too low. There's too many people now that will be able to access it, right? There's no um, barriers to entry cost-wise for a global crime syndicate to say, hey, 
what is i'll give you i'll give you a thing that we, we just talked about at oklahoma university what if i wanted to come up with a routine to uh beat um port inspections right what if i wanted to like model the way it's done right now and model it in such a way that i get a a, a test um plan back that will allow me to put more illegal cargo into a more illegal boxes and bring it into us ports with a high probability it's not going to get searched ai is going to help some bad guy do that what if i want to fly a, an aircraft a slow mover so that it defeats radar because i'm flying slow enough at an angle where the doppler effect of the radar doesn't pick up the aircraft. AI is going to help people do that. I'm not trying to give bad guys um, ideas that those things are already happening. So I, I th think AI needs to be used responsibly. I think it's going to be a, a net positive for the for the world. But I also think that uh, companies and countries need to exercise some restraint. Well, you've given us a lot to, to uh, think about and uh, talk about, and we hope to uh, have you back when we get a little more uh, understanding of uh, what this technology brings to the world, both positive and, and uh, the risk posed by it. We've been talking with uh, Paul McGuire, CEO of Nomadics, K-N-O-W-M-A-D-I-C-S, uh, Navy vet and always the smartest guy in the room. Thanks, Paul. We appreciate uh, you taking time uh, to be with Patrick, us today. You're, you're Patrick, you're too kind. Thank you very much for this opportunity. And I'm I'm really looking forward to see how this is received, uh, not only by the people in my company and my partners, but by the, the audience that you guys have. You're doing a, a, a fantastic work and getting the word out through your uh, messaging platform is, is very important. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Paul. Safe uh, travels uh, on the road and uh, we'll talk soon. Uh, Thanks, that's Patrick. it for the uh, Global Dialogue of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Uh, we uh, are a nonprofit, a nonpartisan educational association based at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, we invite you to take a look at our website, tnwac.org, to become a member or to make a donation so we can continue to bring you programs uh, such as uh, this today. That's it, everybody. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.